here in John uh, for some time with faith, hope, and love. James, of course, has varying themes throughout his book, but the overall thing that comes out the strongest is that of faith. And Peter, again, has several themes, but uh, the greatest and the strongest that comes through is hope. And with John, uh, mostly about love and defining God's love for what it truly is, and showing so very clearly that you cannot separate God from his law or love the love of God from God's law, that they are one and the same that the law expresses goodwill and good emotion, good feeling toward both God and man uh, through the keeping of those commandments, which if we do, we will be treating others as we want to be treated uh, and fulfill the law of God, the love of God. We got down to the third epistle last week, and I meant to cover it, and uh, was so long-winded on Second John that I didn't manage it, so let's hit it today. <laughs> it's interesting if you look back here a little bit to First John, he doesn't really address anyone in particular at the beginning. He just starts out almost like to any and all who might hear and have a desire to listen. Although he does address my little children at the beginning of chapter 2, so he's speaking obviously to any and all church people who might be willing to listen, because they were facing an apostasy uh, as we are today. The church was falling apart, and by the time he wrote these books, it had pretty well fallen apart had divided, many had given up, many had quit, many had uh, gotten into other things. Uh, the situation was very, very much what we were experiencing today. So it's interesting that he sort of addresses everyone as a whole in First John, the book. We get to the second epistle. And here he opens it specifically to the elect lady or the church, specifically, not prospective members, not some maybe who have fallen away, but perhaps those who were still faithful. So he's addressing what is left of the church, let's say, more specifically. Then when we get to Third John, he wrote to an individual, to Gaius. Now the reason I bring that up is that a message can go out from God in a general sense to any who knew of the truth, heard of the truth, in hopes that some will listen. Then it can get drawn down to that which is left of the church, be it many different branches or sisters or daughters, or however we might term it. But then it gets down to who is going to do something about it. In other words, it gets down to the individual level. And it seems that John draws it down that way. I'm going to address this to everybody within hearing. Now I'm going to address 
the church that is left alive. And now let's get down to brass tacks. I'm going to talk to an individual here. Somebody who might be able to do something about the situation, to be able to help, to save, to uh, keep that which remained. Bear in mind, he was writing almost 100 A.D. and was probably well up in his 90s when he wrote this. So he says, The elder unto the well-beloved Gaius, whom I love in the truth. So, here again, he is talking about the true love of God, the agape, and the truth. You can love a lot of people in a human way, but the truth sets people apart. There is a different category for those who understand the truth. So, he says he very much loved Gaius, and much of the reason was because of the truth that Gaius understood and was following. He said, Beloved, I wish above all things that you may prosper and be in health, even as your soul prospers. A better translation would be, as your spiritual growth prospers. A little bit of a bad translation there. So, in other words, he's wishing him well, both physically and spiritually, even as we should. For I rejoiced greatly when the brethren came and testified of the truth that is in you, even as you walk in the truth. It was encouraging to John in the the face of all who were falling away to see someone who still had the truth and was walking in it. You know, it's one thing to know the truth. It's another thing to follow it, to walk even as Christ walked. Be doers, not hearers only. So understanding means nothing unless we work hard at living up to it. So he makes a distinction there between just having the truth and this man Gaius who apparently was walking in the truth. He says, I have no greater joy than to hear that my children walk in truth. He was an apostle who had been in the church at this point for close to 60 years. An old man. He had seen a lot, experienced a lot. He had seen the church when it first began and began thriving, growing with a flourish. He saw a time when faith began to wane, when people began to be tired, weary. He saw them begin to fall away, to give up. So his greatest joy at this point, late in his life, was to hear of children, members, who walked in truth. And I think that is becoming very true today. If we hear of someone somewhere that maybe we used to know who is still in the truth, who is still seeking to follow God, no matter what branch of the church they might be in, that is neither here nor there. Because we understand that the faithful in Christ are scattered throughout the church, throughout all the branches of it. There is not a branch that is all righteous. 
but there are people who are faithful scattered throughout. And God makes it very clear that He will (coughs) stir those who are faithful, wherever they may be, to come together at some point as a remnant to finish the work. So, it's with good news, it is good news or good tidings to hear of someone faithful. So he says, Beloved, do you faithfully whatsoever you do to the brethren and to strangers? First to the brethren, then to strangers, to treat everyone with equanimity, to treat them well, to do good to them, which have borne witness of the love of your love before the church, whom if you bring forward on their journey after a godly sort, then shall you do well. So Gaius was a leader, obviously, probably an elder, minister in the church that had remained, and he encouraged him here to keep, help people keep moving toward truth, toward living God's way, in a time when it was popular to go the other way. But God would cause him to do well and would assess what he had done as something that was good. Because that for his name's sake they went forth taking nothing of the Gentiles, in other words, without constraint of their own free will, helping, doing whatever was possible to cause people to continue to follow God in times of stress, distress, and difficulty. It is very difficult for us to be faithful to be true to God, to not begin to feel like, what is going on? Why do we suffer what we suffer? And yet, the the scriptures are full of passages that show why God did this to the church and what he expects of us. God is perfect in his love, and he does to us and allows to happen to us all those things which would cause us to turn to Him. Let's for a moment consider Job. Perhaps it would be worth going through that book uh, in its entirety more carefully. But just as an overall thought, Job was essentially a righteous man. And in fact, God said, I don't find fault in terms of behavior or whatever in Job. But, Job obviously had an attitudinal difficulty, uh, perhaps thinking of himself too highly and not of God high enough. He didn't realize the great contrast that was still there between him and God. Now, here was a righteous man that God or man could really find no fault with, and even the designated accuser of the brethren, Satan, didn't find anything wrong with Job. And if anybody's going to nitpick something that's wrong, that's who it would be, because he's looking for any fault he can find in any of us, and is very quick to go tell the Father and the Son about our problems. Now, as 
everything was taken away from Job, and he sat in a pile of boils with excruciating pain and no Ativan available. His friends tried to tell him what was wrong with him and why God had done this. But God had something in mind. And things, I don't know how long that trial lasted, but quite some time. But he had lost his flocks and herds, all his wealth. He had lost all of his children. He had lost his health. And his wife said, just curse God and die and be done with it. That's, that's real encouraging there, you know. So Job was in a hurt. <clears throat> and he may have wondered and did wonder, why is this happening? And all his friends sat around the circle and tried to figure it out. Point out what his problems were. Didn't really come up with anything much. But finally, Job got the big picture. And he began to honor the great God of creation and saw the vast difference between God and himself. Even though he was keeping the law, even though he was essentially regarded as a righteous man, there was something he needed to learn. Now, we might argue a little bit about exactly what it was that people have gone back and forth in the book of Job. So, that aside, he obviously saw something he had not seen. And what he saw was what God wanted him to see, okay? Technicalities aside, he saw what God wanted him to see. And then, the pressure was immediately relieved, and he began to receive blessings again. Now, we as a church... We're not as pristine as Job. In fact, we were pretty lukewarm. So, God had far greater reason and excuse to spew us out than he did with Job. It is not God who is the problem. I've said that before, and I think we all need to be reminded that of that from time to time. It is we who need to see and act the way God wants us to, to comprehend, to perceive. But it's easy for us as human beings to begin to feel picked on. You know, quite frequently throughout church history here at the end time, ministers will go back to Genesis and show how Adam and Eve started playing the blame game. God wasn't the problem. They were. But we've rehearsed that many, many times in different situations and circumstances. About how, well, they shouldn't have blamed each other, and they shouldn't have blamed God, and they shouldn't have done this, and they shouldn't have done that. But it's so easy to blame them and then not apply it to ourselves. Because it's always somebody else's fault. Somebody else is the problem, not me. Now, Adam and Eve simply weren't repentant. They got caught, so they were ashamed. 
They had worldly sorrow. They were embarrassed to meet God, so they tried to get something on and tried to hide their sin. But they were not in an attitude of repentance whatsoever. Oh man, did we ever goof. Did I ever goof. Forgive me, Father. No, they were still in a defensive mode. It's her fault, she did it. No, it's his fault. It's the devil's fault. The devil made me do it. All the excuses that they could come up with at that point, they used. Now, we are in the same situation. God scattered us, divided us, and spewed us out, and we need to repent. That is, change our attitudes and turn to Him with all our hearts. And then things will change for us. But that's what has to occur. And it's not an easy process. We are finding that human beings change woefully, slowly. We can know sometimes, and sometimes we don't even see, but when we do see, it's hard for us to change. It takes work. So John is encouraging Gaius here to work at it and to help people along, to encourage them, strengthen them, help them. Help them. Uh, and there were those who did not have that attitude, as we'll get to in a moment. He addresses a problem. He said, I wrote to the church... Oh, wait a minute, I guess I missed eight, verse 8. We therefore ought to receive such that we might be fellow helpers to the truth. So what he's saying here is, Gaius, I'm writing you because you've had a good attitude, you've been walking in truth, you're trying to help others, but there is a problem. We need to be fellow helpers to the truth. As Paul put it, support the weak, comfort uh, the feeble-minded, and so on. We're here to help one another, to strengthen one another, to encourage one another. And that's what Gaius was doing, so John encouraged him in that. And he says in verse 9, I wrote to the church, maybe referring back to Second John or maybe even to First John, says, I did this, I wrote to the church, but Diotrephes, who loves to have the preeminence among them, receives us not. So he named names here of someone who was causing trouble. Now, John was much loved by Christ. He had been faithful through all those decades. I'm sure John was not, at this point yet, perfect. No man has been except Christ. So he may have still had his problems and difficulties, though I think he will probably, in his 90s, may have been ahead of you and me. But even as much as John had grown as much of his character as he had been able to alter, and as much of his human nature he had been able to put under lock and key, he would have had to have been looked upon as one who was faithful, true, loyal, and had the love of God within him by anybody who was truly astute, spiritually speaking. But... There was one named Diotrephes who did not look upon John and any others who were faithful in a good light. 
His problem was a certain vanity, an ego, where he wanted to be seen, recognized, and have preeminence. And sometimes, through pride and vanity and self-centeredness, we can overlook the good in each other in order to try to be recognized in some form or fashion, whatever that might be. <coughs> Maybe not toward office, but toward spirituality or toward goodwill that we would like to receive from others, pats on the back, whatever that our psyche requires. Wherefore, if I come, I will remember his deeds, which he does, praising against us with malicious words, and not content therewith, he isn't even content to put us down, to slam us, to stab us in the back, to be negative, to try to pull people away. He's not even content with that. Neither does he himself receive the brethren and forbids them that would and cast them out of the church. Now, it does not say whether Diotrephes had been in the ministry or what, or just as a church member. Perhaps he, by casting them out, I didn't look that word up in the Greek, but perhaps causing them to pull away uh, if he were just a member or if he were in a position of authority trying to get rid of them or disfellowshipping them. I don't know to what degree that would be. But it's neither here nor there in a sense. <laughs> what is really important here <clears throat> is attitudes, excuse me. In other words, we should be helping people stick with the truth, stay in the truth, be encouraging to them, and that is the attitude we should approach life. The other is to be putting down, talking negative, finding fault, is the opposite emotion and approach, opposite attitude. In other words, God is uplifting and restorative and strengthening. Satan is just the opposite, pull down, uh, accuse, or whatever. So you have a contrast here between someone who had a godly attitude and someone who had a satanic attitude. One helping and strengthening, one pulling down. <clears throat> so the details of how he went about it really is neither here nor there. It's the overall attitude that we need to look at and be sure that we're on the right side of this coin. <clears throat> so he says in verse 11, Beloved, follow not that which is evil, but that which is good. He that does good is of God, but he that does evil has not seen God. So he brings it down to what I just said here. If we are looking to encourage, strengthen, help, then that is of God. If we are in a negative attitude, pulling down, stabbing in the back, talking negative, then we are of Satan. Not of God, it says. The Pharisees were not of God. Now, they did lots of good works. They did lots of service. They did lots of uh, donations. They did a lot of things that would appear to be good, but they were not. And Christ made that very, very clear. 
So appearances are not everything. It boils down to what is our attitude. What are we, how are we approaching life? How are we approaching one another? <clears throat> so then he contrasts that. Demetrius has good report of all men and of the truth itself. So it says, here's an example of someone who's pulling down on church members. Let's say wolf mode, if you will. Wolf mode is pulling people down. Pulling the sheep down. Making them feel bad. Making them feel negative. Making them despise their leadership as they did toward John. That's wolf mode. Learn to recognize it. Demetrius was the opposite. <clears throat> he had good report and of the truth. Yes, and we also bear record. And you know that our record is true. So it began to show which way? We need to be astute. We need to recognize when someone is pulling down and when someone is trying to lift up. There is a difference. Now, it's interesting that John goes through this. I hadn't wanted to go into the book of Jude necessarily in faith, hope, and love, but it is very interesting that this is, that it follows the third epistle of John. John addresses an issue that was in the church, and the book of Jude picks it up right there and goes forward with it. Now, much of that book in Jude is the same thing we covered in Second Peter, too, and I didn't come back here, uh, even though it was a sister chapter or book. Uh, but I think it would be good to do so. You thought we were going to have a 15-minute sermonette because I already made it almost through Third John, didn't you? <coughs> Let's finish it right quickly. He said, I had many things to write, but I will not with ink and pen write to you, but I trust I shall shortly see you, and we shall speak face to face. Peace be to you. Our friends salute you. Greet the friends by name. Interesting to me, he puts it that way. The friends. He called them little children throughout his book. Members or whatever, but here he says, friends, those who are left in the truth are still friendly, still friends with him and friends with them. But those who have begun to depart are not acting as friends. They begin to accuse, to put down, to backbite, to cause negativity, gossip. We've experienced all those things here. Probably every one of us has imbibed of them to one degree or another. So, his parting shot is not, so be it, came in, or something of that nature. It's, let's be friends. Let's be friendly. Let's love one another. Christ called us friends there in John 16 or 17, wherever it was there, in his talk with the disciples. So he had elevated us to the level of friends. And prior to that, he didn't mention many as his friend. He didn't put them on that same level. But he did. So John 
gives his salutation by addressing friends and those who will be friends and be friendly. Those who can still be counted as friends, if you will. And leaves out those who were enemies, like Demetrius, or Diotrephes, excuse me. Demetrius was a good guy. And others. Now let's go into Jude. <clears throat> I'll try to cover it fairly quickly and not get too deeply into it. But the attitude that John had addressed with Diotrephes was a more general problem. And Jude addressed it. Now remember, James and Jude were half-brothers of Christ, had grown up with him, knew him very well, and were very concerned about what they were seeing in the end, well, not the end-time church, but the end of the early New Testament church. We fast forward to the very end of the age of the cosmos of this world. But we are going through similar circumstances that they went through back then. And God inspired Jude to write this so that it would be here for us, so that it would not be lost. Because what Jude had to say to a dying church then is applicable to a dying church today, where the numbers are slowly getting smaller and smaller, the divisions greater, and more and more scattering is still occurring. So he says, Jude, the servant of Jesus Christ, or Emmanuel as we have started to call him, and brother of James, to them that are sanctified by God the Father and preserved in Jesus Christ and called. So he's writing specifically to the church, those who have been set aside by God to become the bride of Christ in the first resurrection. So he's writing to us as well, because we have been designated and sanctified for that purpose. And God is scattering the church today, punishing, chastening those sons whom he loves to help us become what we should be so that we can fulfill the sanctity, the sanctification or the setting aside that he did with us so we can be there when the first resurrection occurs. Mercy to you and peace and love be multiplied. That's the attitude that he wanted to see there and multiplying. The one we work toward having takes work to generate love for one another, good feeling for one another, encouragement for one another. It's easy to pull back. It's easy to criticize. It's e easy to be negative. It's just natural to the human state. So you have to encourage multiplication of good. Beloved, when I gave all diligence to write to you of the common salvation, that which we're all working for, in other words, it was needful for me to write to you and exhort you that you should earnestly contend for the faith which was once delivered to the saints. In other words, people were beginning to accept false doctrine, to plunge into heresy, to begin to reject the things that are in this book. 
I did go over the content of this verse, I guess, was it last week or a week before, sometime very recently anyway, because it is misused and taken out of context. People try to use something Herbert Armstrong understood in 1927 or 1930 or 1939 or 42 or whenever, but he said then, before he gained maybe greater understanding on a particular topic, and say, well, that's the first thing that God showed Herbert Armstrong, so that was the faith once delivered. No, it wasn't. The faith once delivered was what Christ taught the disciples. And it's what the disciples, become apostles, wrote in this book. This is the faith once delivered by the Lord Christ to his church. Not something Herbert Armstrong may or might may not have understood at any particular given time in his life. In fact, the man died not having fully understood the Bible. Do we grasp that? I'm not putting him down. I'm not saying he wasn't a man of God and a minister of God who did a great work for God in calling many people from whom God could choose those who would be faithful to be in the first resurrection. He was used for that. He never did understand the full flow of prophecy and the details of what are becoming apparent to us today. He didn't need to. He wasn't going to live to see it. He didn't know that, but that was the way it was going to be. So he didn't need to know everything. He needed to know enough to teach us the basic truths. And he was not the Elijah to come. He restored a great deal, but he did not restore all things. And much has been learned since his death. And not only that, but when he died, the end didn't come. He did not preach the gospel around the world as a witness to all nations, and then the end come. It's been over a quarter of a century, and the end has not yet come. I don't know whether we can say the end is in sight yet, but it's a whole lot closer than it was a quarter century ago. Now we need to understand that we can't pick out what Herbert Armstrong might have believed at some particular point in his life and say that was the truth. Now, if that's the case, Pentecost on a Monday was what was once delivered to him. And it has shown since to have been an error, and an error he recognized and corrected. But if you're going to use that reasoning, it was the truth secondly delivered to him. Okay? So let's get it straight. This book is what was once first delivered. And that's why when I got into that government thing again, I said, let's examine what the Scriptures say, not what some letter might have said a long time ago, and that the man later on changed and said had been wrong. This is the faith once delivered, right here. This we can depend upon. This we can trust. What I believed 40 years ago about something is neither here nor there even if I heard it from Herbert Armstrong's mouth.
if it didn't fit this scripture. Anyway, going on then. For there are certain men crept in unawares or slipped in, snuck in. Uh, they didn't come boldly and announce, I'm a wolf here. I've decided to come destroy this church. That's not the way they come in. I've watched a lot of predators in my life, and you have too, if only on National Geographic. But most of the time they sneak in. Cats crouch down, and they move very slowly and watch the prey, and when they're looking away, they move. And when they look back, they freeze. Wolves, predator cats, foxes, they all go about it that way. They may finally come with a rush, yes, but that's not how they start out. So those who come within the church kind of blend in to the grass or the wallpaper, whatever analogy you might want to use, and sort of show up, and you know they can appear, demons even can appear as bringers of light. So men can do the same. They can appear to be good. They can appear to be righteous. They can appear to be Christian and serving and loving, and that not be the case. That's what he says. Certain men slipped in <clears throat> who were before of old ordained to this condemnation, ungodly men, turning the grace of our God into lawlessness and denying the only Lord God and our Lord Emmanuel. So they would try to do away with the law, statutes, the judgments, the word of God. Maybe they won't say within the church, the commandments are done away. That's what the Methodists and Baptists do. But they might start changing certain things. That's why he warned above, be sure you follow what Christ taught us and what we've written down. So I wrote before, but I'm writing again, and I want to be sure you get this. It is so easy for us to misjudge. Verse 5, I will therefore put you in remembrance, though you once knew this, how that the Eternal, having saved the people out of the land of Mitzrayim, afterward destroyed them that believed not. <clears throat> they were believers when they came out of across the Red Sea. Didn't last long. As soon as they got a little bit of thirst on the far side, most of them caved in. But that happened over and over and over again. God would deliver, oh, and then begin to murmur and complain again almost immediately. I think we should recognize that. It's so easy to feel blessed one moment and the next moment begin to grumble and gripe and wonder and be upset and frustrated about what God's not doing. So we kind of get blown about like the waves of the sea and the winds, don't we? if we're not careful and not stable in God. So he brings that up. Look how they wavered and failed and got into wrong attitudes after such incredible deliverance. He goes on with a great example in verse 6. And the angels, which kept not their first estate, but left their own habitation, he has reserved in everlasting chains under darkness to the judgment of the great day. 
<coughs> so he brings in holy angels who became demons, who fell from the state that they were in, even as Israel fell from trust in God to distrust in God. Even the angels had done the same thing. Even as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities about them in like manner, giving themselves over to fornication and going after strange flesh or homosexuality, are set forth for an example, suffering the vengeance of eternal fire. Now, no one knows for sure right where Sodom and Gomorrah are today. The fire went out, it has cooled, it is gone, and yet it was eternal fire, wasn't it? Interesting sight light. But that shows you that eternal fire, that is unquenchable fire, or fire that no one can put out, will eventually burn out. Just as the lake of fire, no one can quench, no one can stop, but people don't sizzle and fry and get poked with forks forevermore. No man can put out a fire that God starts until it accomplishes its purpose. And when Sodom and Gomorrah had been wiped out, a, an incident which no fire department then or now could have stopped, when it was done, it went out when the fuel was gone. Anyway, that's an aside. Likewise also, these dreamers defile the flesh, despise dominion, and speak evil of dignitaries, dignities, people in dignified offices. So, he begins to compare Israelites who murmured and demons who rebelled with people who will defile the flesh, sins of one kind or another, despise authority, government that God has established, and speak evil of those in those offices. We must be very, very careful. Now, use as an example here. Michael, the archangel, when contending with the devil, he disputed about the body of Moses, dared not bring against him a railing accusation, but said, The Eternal rebuke you. Now, Satan the devil is the most evil, foul being in the universe. But we need to be very, very careful how we speak even of him. You don't get any worse than Satan and the demons. It just doesn't come any worse than that. But Michael, the righteous angel, archangel, did not put Satan down in a personal sense. He said, the eternal rebuke you. Now, Michael understood Satan's problem. He knew what Satan was. But he didn't say, Satan, blah, 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 blah. He called on a higher power to deal with Satan. He referred him to God and said, the eternal rebuke you, Satan. Which is what we're supposed to do when we recognize or perceive that Satan or his demons are about us or bothering us or trying to influence us. That's the example given here for us. 
Now let's translate that to today. If Michael would not even backbite, put down, speak evil, and accuse Satan the devil, James or Jude says, if we put down those in authority, in offices that God has ordained, we are on the same level as Satan. And we are not to do that even with Satan, Michael the archangel, far more righteous than any of us, didn't do it. Therefore, we are not to do it. So what John said about diatrophies and these examples that Jude uses are an extreme warning for us. We, you know, I could refer you to Romans 13. I won't go there for sake of time. I think we know that. Where he says to be very, very careful, even with the powers that be in the world, that we don't make negative, put-down, stabbing-in-the-back type statements about them. <clears throat> now, in America, that is politically correct. Americans have always been known, all the way back, for despising their leaders, voting them in and then putting them down, or whatever, and saying all kinds of salacious, nasty, mean things about those in political office. Now, those in political office often deserve it, thank you, but that doesn't mean we're supposed to go there. We're not. It's all about attitude, as I mentioned earlier. We should be in the mode of encouragement, strengthening, positivity, bringing out the good, esteeming others better than ourselves. That is the attitude with which we should approach life, day in and day out. If we criticize the political leaders of our nation or any other. We are putting ourselves in a negative mode. And it's easy then to translate that even to our brothers and leaders in the church. It is not a godly approach to life to be negative. Not only that, but if you go back to Daniel at four, 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 six, somewhere right in there. It says that God Himself has set the basest men as leaders of the nations. So if we criticize them, those whom God has placed there for whatever purpose He had in mind, then we are criticizing God Himself for what He has done. Get it? Got it? Good. We must be very careful, brethren. That's what Jude is talking about here. But these speak evil, speaking of men <coughs> in the church, those things which they know not, they think they got it pegged, they think they got it figured out, I've got his number, her number, whatever. But they don't always know. God even ponders the heart. Even he does not make those judgments yet. 
He's giving us every possible chance, every one of us, to make it into his kingdom. Space to repent, opportunity to improve, to grow, to overcome, so that we can enter his kingdom. Are we godly, with godly love, and do we give each other that kind of space, that kind of opportunity, and then spend our time trying to encourage, to help, to strengthen, as opposed to tear down. One is of God, John said, the other is of the Satan. Your approach, your attitude at any given moment is one or the other. It really is. Which way will it be? We've got to tip the scales, tip the balance, keep working at it. Because, as human beings, no matter how much we've tried, we still go to the negative balance way too often. So it's a matter of working on ourselves every day to determine if we are in a positive, outgoing, giving, loving, kind saying good about people and esteeming them better than ourselves, or does a negative sometimes encroach upon us? We have to change that. And it's a lifetime job. It doesn't come easy. You have to work on it every day to be sure that you are lifting your brothers and sisters up rather than putting them down. These speak evil of those things which they know not, but what they know naturally is brute beasts, and those things they corrupt themselves. Just a normal, human, carnal mind will corrupt, will go downhill, will cause negativity. See, John was, a stat, was talking about a problem in the church, and that the love of God would overcome that. So he said, walk in truth and help and strengthen as opposed to pulling down like Diotrephes was doing. Jude's approaching the very same attitude here. Don't be that way. They're just natural human beings full of pride, envy, jealousy, anger, whatever. Any of the negative emotions. Now, we should recognize those things. He says to stay away from that kind of thing. And in staying away from it, you keep it away from yourself. Staying away from negativity, hurt, anger, maliciousness, backbiting, and gossip is, number one, a personal issue with every one of us. To be sure, we are in a positive, uplifting, strengthening attitude and trying to get rid of our negativity. But that's what a natural brute beast does, be it a wolf, a lion, or a human being with claws. Woe to them, for they have gone in the way of Cain, and run greedily after the heir of Balaam for reward, and perished in the gainsaying of Korah. Cain went his own way and said, my way is better. Balaam was focused on money. Korah was rebellion against authority wanting to have the preeminence himself. So those three areas he singles out as very common problems that we, as natural brute beasts, can get into. 
These are spots in your feasts of love. we got the feast coming up now. Let's be sure we are not a spot in the feast. That we don't allow any of these attitudes to be a part of our mind, our emotions, our feelings, our thoughts, or our words. Didn't James say that righteousness really was keeping yourself unspotted from the world and serving others? So he says, people are spotted by attitudes that they allow to fester in their minds. So let's be aware. Next Sabbath starts the feast series, uh, the season. Let's be aware and be sure we are not a spot in God's feast. It doesn't, Jude doesn't mean you have to just be continually evil and walking around with an axe all the time. Spots. Negative comments, negative attitudes. That's bad enough. I mean, yeah, it's worse if you got the axe or the gun and you're looking to shoot somebody. <laughs> but most of us aren't quite that extreme. Most of us are more subtle. Remember, some of these people creep in unawares. And our attitudes slip up on us too, don't they? Don't we so easily begin to put down or to accuse or be negative? No, that's not the way we're supposed to think. We're supposed to fix that. Change that. See, this isn't just referring to one or two or five or fifty men in the church that crept in and are trying to be leaders in a false way. This really is addressed to all of us, all those sanctified by God the Father in Christ. Okay? This is written to all of us. Now, maybe to those who are overtly or more obviously in that mode, it could have a greater effect. But every last one of us, to one degree or another, is this and has been this. <clears throat> Being spots in the feast, and some of those things slip out of us unaware before we even realize. And it may be 30 minutes or a day later or a week later we say, Oh man, did I say that? Yeah, hope nobody noticed, but they did, probably. <laughs> they don't always, but depends on how subtle you were, or how backhanded it was, or what. He's talking about attitude here, whether it be a shade of gray or totally dark. Feeding feed, When they feast with you, feeding themselves without fear, going along, just da-da-da-da-da, Thinking they're okay, thinking what they say, well, what I said was true. Yeah, but it wasn't good. Might have been true, but it wasn't the right thing to say. It was negative, it wasn't uplifting, it wasn't helpful. It was a put-down. It was a stab in the back. And not even realizing it. Feeding themselves without fear. Not even afraid of what they're saying or what they're doing. Not assessing it. Not thinking about it not recognizing it for what it really is. We all do it. We just let things slip out and don't think a thing about it. Think about it. We should fear to be negative. 
feeding themselves without fear. Clouds they are without water. Just floating by, but not raining. I've seen a lot of clouds in my life that just went on over and didn't rain. Didn't do us a whole lot of good, did they? Carried about of winds, blown this way and that way, not really taking hold and being anchored and stable, but being tossed and blown by whatever winds that come along. Trees whose fruit withers because of lack of what? A tree must have nourishment, water, true doctrine, good, and it must have nutrients, manure if you will, in order to produce fruit and sunshine. It has to have good things that it needs in order to produce good fruit. But if we are negative and down and talk that way about each other, we're not being friends, and our fruit will wither, because it is not godly fruit that will be producing what God wants to harvest. The first fruits, those who not only endured, but loved and gave and helped and served, and didn't knock other fruit off the tree, or chew on the sheep in the wolf mode, or whatever. And we've all been wolves to one degree or another. We have all plucked fruit from the tree by picking at and pecking at others like a bird would a ripening piece of fruit. Twice dead. Not only will they die once, they'll wind up dying twice if they maintain that attitude. Plucked up by the roots. Didn't Christ say, grab it, tear it out. If it doesn't produce good fruit, give it another year. Let's see. Give it a chance. Otherwise, pluck it up. Raging waves of the sea, foaming out their own shame. Wandering stars to whom is reserved the blackness of darkness forever. There's a transition seemingly there between men who are doing this and demons. And I think what Jude is saying is that if we have negative, down-pulling attitudes, we are being like Satan. They have the blackness of darkness reserved for them forever, and so will we, if we are in a satanic mode and don't come out of it. John was saying the same thing in the third book of John about friends and enemies. Those who were positive and helping and those who were pulling the other direction. And Enoch also, the seventh from Adam, prophesied of these, saying, Behold, the Eternal comes with ten thousands of his saints. Only 144,000, that's tens of thousands. These are the first fruits, Revelation 14.4. And no more and no less. First resurrection is limited to 144,000, the bride of Christ. The others come in the innumerable multitude later on. To execute judgment upon all and to convince all that are ungodly among them of all their ungodly deeds which they have ungodly committed and of all their hard speeches which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. I think ungodliness is kind of a bad thing based on the way he said that. He's contrasting a satanic negative way with the positive way of God. 
These are murmurers. I mean, it sounded bad back here when he referred, referred to us as being like Korah or Balaam or so on. But just murmuring, just complaining, griping. What do you murmur against? What do you gripe against? God or people? I mean, you might cuss the cat, I don't know, but basically it's God and people. So he's saying here, those who murmur against God or each other, complainers, walking after their own desires, and their mouth speaking great swelling words, having men's persons in admiration because of advantage. We think we can influence others by saying negative things. If we are in that mode, we are vain and self-centered and putting ourselves above others. We have no right to complain, to murmur, to criticize. We just don't. We are required to be uplifting, kind, gentle, peaceable, loving, and be peacemakers. This is really quite simple, basic Christianity that John and Jude are teaching, isn't it? And we all fall short. We don't have to make this a great dramatic overblown thing about two or three or five or twenty or a hundred people that we know that have been in the church that, boy, that's, that's him or them. No, it's all of us, to one degree or another. But beloved, remember you the words which were spoken before of the apostles of our Lord Emmanuel. Remember the right words. It's real easy to remember faults, sins, problems, attitudes, difficulties that people might have, or attitudes they, you think they have, or whatever. Remember what Christ said. How that they told you there should be mockers in the last time who should walk after their own ungodly, selfish lusts, feelings, and desires. And there is. And it is us. To one degree or another. Are we at this point all bad? No, I don't mean to say it that way. Do we still have satanic accusing attitudes from time to time? More or less? Yes. So we all have work to do. But beware when you see people that tend to negativity and anger and frustration and backbiting and gossip. That's something, if we're going to change in ourselves, we need to avoid like the plague. And if somebody's doing that, we need to tell them so. I'm not going to listen to that. You should not be saying those things. You have a responsibility, brethren. When you see somebody in a negative attitude who is doing put-downs, murmuring, complaining, and so on, you have a responsibility because they are in a satanic attitude. They're in a negative mode, a wolf mode, a puller of green fruit mode, whatever you want to say. And it is endangering their eternal life. Christ didn't really make any bones about it, did he? 
He loved Peter greatly. He knew Peter would be an apostle someday. And he knew Peter would be one of the leaders of the twelve tribes of Israel as a bride of Christ someday. But when Peter got in a wrong attitude, Christ himself told Peter, Get behind me, Satan. There is the example of your Lord and Master. When someone is in a negative, complaining, gossiping, bitchy mood. These be they who separate themselves. Begin to remove themselves from the flock, from the brotherhood, sisterhood. To pull back. Negativity will eventually lead you to pull back. Not only from each other, but from God and from his kingdom. Pulling back is scary. Paul put it a different way. But we are not to forsake the assembling of ourselves together. We are to be here for each other's sake and for our own sake. Not pull back, because when you pull back, you begin to emotionally remove yourself. Not only are you endangering your own eternal life, but you are not being the positive influence and help for your brothers and sisters. And the love of God is above all things outgoing concern. Wanting to help, to serve, to give to others. That is the love of God, who reached out to a sinning world and gave his Son that the sinners might be saved. So we have a responsibility not to draw back, to be, but to be a part of and not withdraw from, but give ourselves. Otherwise, we become like Satan who drew back from God and separated from God. Totally different wrong attitude. Who separate themselves sensual, that is, answering to their own senses. I don't feel good about this. I smell trouble here. I have a bad taste in my mouth. I don't feel Right. In other words, our own human senses may not be being uh, massaged the way we want them to be. And therefore, we pull back and give in to our human selfish desires rather than using our ability and strength, putting our own desires and flesh aside to be a living sacrifice as Romans 12.1 tells us. Having not the Spirit. The Spirit of God is outgoing, serving, loving, and wants to come together. You know, mankind, male and female, were not made to be alone. When we're alone, we're lonely. Single people feel the four walls closing in upon them. Loneliness is not a good feeling. Whether it be a mate, whether it be friends, or whatever, there is within us all somehow a need to feel included, loved, wanted, cherished, 
not just be alone. And yet, if we are not getting our senses exercised the way we want to, sometimes out of selfishness we begin to pull back. No, we have to put the flesh, ourselves, down and move forward. Or put ourselves aside, not down, I don't mean in a negative sense. We have to control our feelings and emotions and not pull back from one another, but draw close in love. A body needs to be close. We all here have a physical body, and it's all pretty close together, isn't it? My arm isn't over there, and my leg back there, and my ear over in the other corner. I'm all here in one piece, such as it is. The body has to be together, and when you start separating it, it causes pain and hurt. 1 Corinthians 12. We're a body in Christ. So we must pull together and stay together. And we need to love one another and treat each other with love and kindness and affection rather than with disdain and negativity and frustration and gossip. My hands get along pretty fine and pretty well with each other unless one of them goes like that. Ow! That was just a demonstration. One's supposed to hurt. We're to live together in peace and harmony and not bite and chew and slap and beat on one another. Now, in kidding and kindness and in love, we can kid one another. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about true negative emotion and hurt. Beloved, building up yourselves on your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit. It takes effort. It takes prayer to love one another in the way that we need to be doing. So he tells us, let's not be negative, just like Third John did. Let's move forward in faith and love. Keep, it, keep yourselves in the love of God, <coughs> excuse me, looking for the mercy of our Lord Emmanuel unto eternal life. Let's keep the goal in mind. Let's focus that so we're here to become God and that God has called every one of us for the same reason. We all have the same goal in common. We need to be working toward and helping one another as members of the same body, of the same flesh, to fulfill the goal that God called us all to do. And if some have compassion, making a difference. You have to treat people differently. Sometimes... Someone has difficulties and problems, we need empathy, we need compassion, we need to allow for them, to be patient with them, to give them every opportunity to grow, to give them time, and not judge them harshly and say, well, if they don't change by tomorrow afternoon, out with them. Patience, love, compassion. Some, and this takes wisdom, and prayer, you treat that way. Others save with fear, putting, pulling them, jerking them out of the fire, hating even the garments spotted by the flesh. Sometimes patience, opportunity is needed. 
And once in a while, someone is so self-destructive and destructive of others that they just need to be jerked out of the fire. Get behind me, Satan, if you will. Having the wisdom and control to know when to do which is a lifetime learning process. Now to him that is able, and he is. What did Paul say? Who is able to save me from this body of sin and death? Christ himself, he said. Same is true here. To him, that would be Christ and the Father together, that is able to keep you from falling and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy. That's God's attitude. Now, that's the attitude we need to have toward each other. We want so desperately to see one another in that resurrection glorified. We need to think of each other that way as we go through life day by day. Here is someone that God sanctified, set apart for a holy purpose to rise to meet Christ in the air when he returns. If we look at one another that way, day in and day out, we will not criticize one another and put each other down and have negative attitudes because that isn't the mode we're in. Our mode is uplifting, wanting to see that person become God. That's what he's saying. To the only wise God, our Savior, be glory and majesty, dominion and power, both now and ever, so be it. 